If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this November 5th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Happy to be back after an unexpected, unscheduled two-week hiatus. And because of that hiatus, not only do we have a ton to talk about, but we're also going to be doing three hours of on this particular podcast in hour number two, we've got a tremendous interview with conservative commentator and author and columnist Mona Charon. Uh, you definitely want to check that out in hour number two. And in hour number three, a special a- hour that was added because of developments in my never-ending quest for justice in the so-called Penn State scandal involving uh, Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno. In the last couple of weeks, I went back to Pennsylvania, and there's been a ton of new information, uh, some of which, only by the, by the way, a small amount of which I can share with you, but you're absolutely going to want to check out uh, our number three if you remotely care about that case, even just a little bit. And if you don't, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you because it's utterly amazing. So that's our number three. Our number one, as usual, will be a review of the news as best I can, considering the fact we have so much to cover. First, on a personal note, obviously uh, Halloween happened uh, this particular week, which for me, I was really hoping was going to be a, uh, a really fantastic moment. As you well know, uh, I have a, a five-year-old daughter, Grace. Uh, she's been on this program before. You remember her during the campaign. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? You remember her from the final episode of the now-defunct, nationally syndicated Sunday night show where she came up with the best explanation for why the show was ending. It's costing money! Right. So, Grace, as most five whole, five-year-olds are... Uh, was really into Halloween, but particularly so because her favorite movie is The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is kind of a Halloween movie, kind of a Christmas movie, and she is obsessed with this movie. And she's particularly obsessed with the two main characters, Jack the Pumpkin King and Jack's girlfriend, Sally. And she had decided that she was going to be Sally for Halloween, And that I was going to be Jack, 
which would mean that for the third consecutive year, uh, she and I were basically paired on Halloween. Uh, the previous two years, she had been Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, and I was Prince Charming, which I took, I took those roles exceedingly seriously. And we had a lot of fun with them, and uh, it was definitely a bonding experience between dad and daughter. But I'm also a realist who understands that this portion of her life is quickly ending, and that uh, dad is going to be an afterthought uh, in short order. And there are very few opportunities, especially with my pathetic life, uh, for dad to ever be a hero to his daughter, Grace. So I was really looking forward to this i I thought this was going to be awesome and of course in this day and age halloween is no longer a one-night affair no it's a month-long if not more festival and unfortunately during this uh very long festival that is halloween just about everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong which is unfortunately so typical of the life that i lead Uh, i've already alluded to the fact that grace started off the Halloween festival exceedingly early, like in mid-September, she was asking me to take her to the local Halloween store on almost a daily basis, which we did not allow. I I cut it off at every other day because I didn't want her to burn out on it. But then something very unfortunate happened. She says that she started to get nightmares because of some of the scarier aspects of the Halloween store. My wife 100% believes her. I'm not as convinced because I'm the one she's waking up in the middle of the night at least once, if not twice, so that uh, I can tuck her back into bed after these nightmares where she doesn't really appear to be very distraught at all. And so I'm not fully understanding what's going on but the here's what i do know we stopped going to the halloween store and i stopped getting sleep so that was unfortunate right off the bat there then we went to a party uh, where at our local country club uh, where we're social members and uh, it was a halloween kids party and, you know, I'm all dressed up like Jack the Pumpkin King. I'm looking sharp. She's looking great as Sally. And just as we enter the party, the just by coincidence, the DJ is playing the music from Nightmare Before Christmas. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. So I make a grand entrance and all these kids are around and I'm you know, playing Jack the Pumpkin King to these kids, and they're all buying into it, and it's fantastic because it's a really good costume that I'm wearing. And I'm thinking, this is fantastic. And Grace doesn't like it at all. Later, my wife would help me figure out it's because she felt upstaged by Jack the Pumpkin King. And I'm like, oh, great. Oh, man. So I blew that. So later in that party... After things calm down, uh, uh, there's a father-daughter dance. So I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. Going to be a father-daughter dance. Dad's Jack the Pumpkin King. My daughter's Sally. She worships Jack the whole bit. And literally just as the father-daughter dance is starting, somehow my daughter, and I don't even know what happened, she got clocked in the head by one of the other kids. My wife makes a huge deal out of it, which you never do when kids get hurt unless they're really hurt, which she was not. And so Grace starts crying, and there's no father-daughter dance. So that gets torpedoed by incredibly bad luck. Then... And this really pissed me off more than even missing the father-daughter dance. So there's a costume contest at the end of this party uh, for uh, scariest and cutest. And, you know, Grace wants to win the scariest because she's, you know, Sally, who's 
basically a zombie, and uh, and she doesn't win, and she immediately melts down crying, which has me pissed off to no end that this is in keeping with her becoming a spoiled brat because we we dote on her so much. Thankfully, we have a second child named Diana, which might eventually curtail some of that, but that's where we are right now. And then I'm 99% sure because they felt bad for her, they end up giving her the cutest costume, which I hated because I didn't want her rewarded for her meltdown. And then she had a meltdown over that for some unknown reason. So that whole thing was a disaster. Then she asked me to come on the podcast uh, because she hadn't been on for almost a year. And I said, okay, well, come on for Halloween. That'll be perfect. We'll talk about, you know, what's going to happen, why you're into Jack the Pumpkin King, the whole Halloween thing. And then, unfortunately, our, our producer, Kevin, ends up getting sick literally just uh, an hour or so before the podcast last week. So that had to be canceled. So that was a complete clusterfuck. And then, finally, Halloween comes around, and we go to my, my wife's parents' In Glendale, California, just outside of Los Angeles, because that's where they have a big, uh, you know, trick or treating event in in the neighborhood, and everything that could possibly go wrong there uh, went wrong. And my daughter ends up getting very tired very quickly, partially because I guess in our effort to dilute everything that used to be special in our culture, they are so Halloweened out by the time trick or treating comes around, and and, and I mean literally Halloweened out because. You know, at her school or public kindergarten, you're not allowed to bring in sweets and, and of any kind. I mean, cupcakes and peanut butter are now, you know, like uh, poison in public school for some reason. I mean, you know, it used to be normal to bring in cupcakes on someone's birthday. Well, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And, of course, you got to stay away from all things peanut butter because somebody might be allergic to it. But, um, but I digress. So, but for some reason on Halloween day, they brought in cupcakes and all sorts of tweets, the sweets and, and, you know, my daughter had already gone, uh, I guess you call it trick or treating at a church event over the weekend. So, you know, the, the allure of sweets and candy is gone. It's nothing special about it anymore. Uh, and it's past her bedtime and she's just exhausted. So basically the whole Halloween thing was a big disappointment from uh, from dad's perspective. I think she had, you know, decent enough time, which is the most important thing. But uh, like everything else, uh, when you have high expectations in life, uh, be prepared to be disappointed. So that's pretty much what uh, transpired with Halloween. And I'm now quite certain that uh, dad will be in the dustbin of history when it comes to uh, Halloween costumes and will never have another opportunity to do that again. But, you know, such is life. All right, so... This has um, been a very busy couple of weeks. It always is in the era of Trump, but I've got a lot to to uh, be able to review over the last couple of weeks since we had our unexpected hiatus. Obviously, in non-directly Trump-related news, although there's clearly a Trump connection given the fact that here's a president who believes that when you're a star, women will let you grab them by the pussy and not do anything about it. And apparently uh, he's accurate in that assessment since he is president of the United States. So there is a Trump connection. But obviously the issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault uh, have been uh, pervasive in the news both uh, politically and in Hollywood over the last couple of weeks, we had a chance to discuss the Harvey Weinstein allegations, and there's been some evolution on that front. I mean, wow, boy, the floodgates opened up on him, and now he's in big trouble. Apparently, uh, New York authorities believe they have a 
legitimate criminal rape case against him. And, you know, I, I like everybody else. I think the guy's a scumbag. I think he's a, he's a piece of crap. Uh, it's obvious that he's a sicko. I don't know for sure that he's a rapist yet. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going by some of these stories uh, that didn't seem consistent with somebody who's a rapist. Uh, not that I would ever be fully understanding of, of a rapist's mindset. Um, like for instance, and I, I'm, I hate to even be, be, be remotely considered to be even in a little way defending Harvey Weinstein because I'm not. But one of the things that always makes me a little antsy is when someone claims that they got raped by somebody twice. Now, and that's apparently the allegation of the woman who New York authorities are claiming uh, rape allegations uh, could be criminal. How does that happen? I mean, I mean, this is not a guy who you're married to or, you know, you would have access to. I mean, this is a guy who people are chomping at the bit to have access to in, in the movie industry because he could make and break careers. He, he's a pretty big celebrity. How is it that you just come across him a second time? I mean, I'm open to an explanation, but how, how does he get access to you and vice versa a second time after he raped you the first time? I, I, I don't understand how that can be. And so it, when it's not just Weinstein, a lot of these allegations I'm, I'm skeptical about. I'm not saying that they're not accurate, but I think in this realm, it's very easy for the truth to change in retrospect and Weinstein might be might be a perfect example of that because here's a guy nobody wants to have sex with this guy I mean he's he's disgusting he's a pig he's, he's unattractive I mean so I can certainly see the underlying possibility of someone deciding they were raped later after the fact that I think is in the realm of possibility here. But again, I, I'm, I have no dog in the, in the hunt of, of defending a, a dirtbag like Harvey Weinstein. I, I mean, he's guilty of a lot of stuff. I don't know exactly what. I don't know whether or not it was criminal or not yet. Um, but he, obviously his allegations have exploded. Everyone came out of the woodwork, and they have not just exploded on him, but they've exploded on other people in Hollywood. I mean, one director, the L.A. Times put out a news article on and you know that's that's credible when immediately hundreds come forward and we're not talking about a guy who's like steven spielberg famous and there's a ton of money necessarily that's going to be there then that is indicates there's a major major problem uh, mark halperin uh political infamy uh a guy who i've never liked i always thought he was sanctimonious and overrated and he's the guy who did uh, that uh, whole game change about the 2008 election, which uh, you know really went after Sarah Palin in ways that I did not think were accurate or fair. So I've I've always had a uh, a thing against Mark Halperin. Well, so I'm not really too upset to see him uh, get his career torched over allegations that are also very weird and clearly way over the line of sexual harassment. Uh, although you know, whether or not they fit into criminal assault or not, it's it's yet to be seen. And then uh, the other big news in, on this front uh, in the political arena is that Bill O'Reilly 
we already knew that Bill O'Reilly had settled with numerous uh, people who were making claims against him. But what we did not know until the New York Times reported it is that Bill O'Reilly once settled with a former Fox News contributor who was on his show quite a bit and whose book he endorsed, a female lawyer, that he had settled with her for $32 million. $32 million. Now, for a guy uh, who became famous for creating the no-spin zone, there is no way to spin that. None. I mean, especially since he didn't provide one. I mean, I'm always open to listening. And Bill O'Reilly's done interviews. He did one with Glenn Beck, which I found to be somewhat disappointing because it seems like Glenn is is buying in a little bit more than I thought he would or should. Uh, I think Glenn's probably a bit invested in his friend and, and not having been duped by his friend. But as I've told Glenn on this podcast, and I've told him to his face, I think Glenn has a warped view of people like O'Reilly because O'Reilly and he are all part of the same club. See, I I feel like I have a better sense of Bill O'Reilly, even though I don't know him nearly as well as Glenn Beck did, because I was dealing with Bill O'Reilly in a far, far, far exponentially less leveraged situation. He didn't view me as an equal. And he he didn't sexually abuse me, but he abused me. He lied to me on his old radio show that cost me thousands of dollars. After the 2008 election, I had done a a, a scientific poll about Obama voters, and I, I came on his show and to talk about the poll. This was all part of my movie, The Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected and Palin was targeted. And he says to me on the air, he says, well, you know, you really should have done a similar poll on McCain voters so that we could have something to, uh, you know, make the, the connection to, to compare to. And I said, okay, fine. If I do that, will you have me on your television show and radio show to discuss this? He's go, yeah, absolutely. Yep. You do the, that, we'll do it. Now, that's, that's a big deal because, especially in that era, you know, in a slightly different media era than what we live in now, that meant that I was going to be able to get some bang for my buck. I knew that if I was on O'Reilly's TV show and on his radio show to discuss a second poll, which was going to cost me thousands of dollars that I didn't have at the time because we hadn't even produced the movie, that that was going to make sense. So I ended up doing exactly what O'Reilly said, and he lied to me. He completely reneged on the offer, partially because of his rivalry with Sean Hannity, who now he's lovey-dovey with because he has to be, because he has no choice, because he has no platform. But at the time, they hated each other. And you know, my I, I was on his television show twice for other matters, one time in studio, and it was just obvious to me the guy is a jackass. He's a bully. He he's a liar. He's a fraud. It was oozing out of every pore. Uh, and I'm pretty good at being able to judge these types of things. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that he's a sexual abuser. Now, whether he's a rapist or not, I don't know, but $32 million, what are you, what are you paying $32 million for? I get, I get that this woman had leverage over him because he was in the midst of renegotiating his Fox contract. So I get that it's not just what your allegation is and how much proof you have, it's, What's your bargaining position? So I get that. That still doesn't add up to $32 million.
I'm sorry. That gets you a couple million. Maybe five. Ten tops. 32 is an admission of guilt. Of a non-consensual sexual act. Gotta remember, people get convicted in civil court, although technically it's not convicted, they're held liable in civil court for wrongful death. And it's never $32 million. Death. And it's never, it, it, you know, I, I know of no case where you get that much money. Maybe it exists, but I mean, even OJ, you know, got, and that was two deaths. Uh, that was in the 30. Three thirty-four million dollar range, and that was a jury decision. The jury, the whole trial, you know, and, and the whole point of this is O'Reilly was trying to avoid negative publicity, avoid having his Fox contract blow up, avoid a potential trial, and then, you know, even the non-disclosure agreement that the woman signed was hardly convincing. He tried to claim that this was an exoneration, which of course. A non-disclosure agreement is is the furthest thing from an exoneration. <laughs> because the fact that you even have them sign one is a sign of guilt. If you didn't have them sign it, there'd be no reason. <laughs> if there was no guilt, why are you having them sign a non-disclosure agreement? And that works both ways, by the way. It bugs the crap out of me that so many of these women are now trying to claim that they're heroes or heroines when they sign non-disclosure agreements. Rose McGowan, who's on Twitter every single day calling everybody a rapist, including Harvey Weinstein, the the actress, uh, Rose McGowan, she signed a non-disclosure agreement for a hundred grand, which prevented her from warning other people about him. Sorry, you sold out. You sold your First Amendment free speech rights for a hundred grand. Don't tell me you're some hero because you're not. You're part of the problem. But in no way, shape, or form was the non disclosure agreement signed by the Bill O'Reilly accuser somehow exculpatory to Bill O'Reilly. Even the language wasn't exculpatory. And so, in lieu of an explanation and a good one, I have no choice but to presume that Bill O'Reilly is guilty of a sexual assault of a very serious degree. What the details are, we'll probably never know. And he's he's saying he's mad at God. (laughs) He's mad at God! As if Bill O'Reilly believes in God! That's the biggest lie of the whole thing. There is no chance Bill O'Reilly believes in God. But for him to say, I'm mad at God... It's just flat out ridiculous. It's absurd. But not as ridiculous, maybe, as George Herbert Walker Bush getting dragged into all this. I mean, God, God. uh, He got uh, uh, an allegation of, quote-unquote, sexual assault against him. In hour number two... Our, our guest, Mona Charon, wrote a great column defending George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, uh, against these charges and how ridiculous and silly this whole thing is to, to bunch him in with everybody else. But um, it, it was disgusting to me. I mean, here's a 90-year-old guy patting a woman on the tush and making some inappropriate comments while he's in a wheelchair. I mean, are you 
Seriously? Seriously. And the guy, we're going to make this at the last chapter of his life? You, you, you have to be kidding. And, and very few conservatives came to his defense because why? Well, you know, we're Trump world now. We're, you know, the, the Bushes are old news, and they're not even part of our family anymore as conservatives. And so there's, there's no market in defending the Bushes because even the conservative base now sees them as the enemy. And interestingly, they're out with some very negative, George Bush 41 and 43 are out with some very negative comments, although accurate, about uh, President Trump uh, this weekend in an article that just came out on Saturday in the New York Times. But what George Bush was accused of is in no way, shape, or form even remotely close in any way possible. I mean, that that woman was not working for him. (laughs) There was no real assault. He's, He's in a wheelchair. He's He's obviously not the same person that he was. And, um, you know, for us not to keep things in context is just juvenile. It's utterly juvenile. Now, of all the allegations on this front, I find the most interesting to be those involving Kevin Spacey. And wow, um, geez. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, uh, Spacey a week ago was uh, a highly respected member of the Hollywood community and Oscar winner and, uh, you know, star of uh, House of Cards and all that business. And and now it's almost all gone. And what's amazing to me about this, among many things, is that he hasn't been charged with anything. He hasn't been sued. And frankly, you know, I haven't read yet a really credible allegation of actual sex between him and an underage boy. And yet, everybody's abandoning ship. You know what that tells me? Everybody knew. That tells me everybody knew all along that this was the way Kevin Spacey works, and and that therefore they won, they know it's true, and that they know it's just a matter of time before the walls completely cave in and the rats are all jumping the ship that they knew had holes in it all along. But they were riding it because it was making them money, winning them awards, and you know they wanted to be close to Kevin Spacey. Now, no one wants to be close to Kevin Spacey anymore. So it appears as if Kevin Spacey is done. But it... it you don't. It just doesn't happen this fast, unless everybody knows. Especially without any proof, or as I've said, even any clear-cut allegation of something that was criminal in nature. Now, obviously, I come at the Spacey allegations from a fairly unique place having been investigating the Penn State case for the last uh, five-plus years and being one of the very few people on the planet willing to say publicly that they are positive that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. And the reason why there's a connection here is because the Spacey allegations are exactly, I mean exactly, what the Sandusky allegations would be if the Sandusky allegations were true. And I'm going to get into that more in hour number three, uh, where we're devoting a special hour on the, this edition of the podcast to new revelations in that whole case. But boy, oh boy, if you look at the spacey allegations with a remotely open mind, 
and you look at the same ages, and you realize Spacey, unlike Sandusky, is gay. You realize that some, not all, uh, unlike in the Sandusky case where they're all straight, some, not all, of the people he allegedly assaulted or attempted to assault are gay. So you have Spacey gay, victims gay. That's not the case on either front in the Sandusky case. Spacey is a master actor, okay? (laughs) Skilled at manipulation (laughs) and pretending to be things that he's not. And he's using alcohol and pornography openly, according to the allegations. Again, none of that. None of that in the Sandusky case. So when you look at it with a remotely open mind, you go, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold on here. There's just no way. So again, more on that in in hour number three. I wrote a column over the last couple of weeks about this from the standpoint of Megyn Kelly and her penchant for uh, when big stories break going, oh, by the way, I knew about this when it happened. I just never said anything. Uh, and how she's a false hero. So you can check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, our website for the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, one of the uh, several columns that I've written over the last uh, couple of weeks that I think you will find of interest, but that one's on uh, Megyn Kelly, who I've written a lot of Megan, anti-Megyn Kelly columns, and partially it's because I used to like Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly is smart. She used to be credible. And now she's totally sold out in so many different ways, and her new show is just an abomination on the Today Show, and and it's constantly in conflict with itself. Now she's in the bizarro world situation of, you know, she portrayed her show as non-political and uplifting, and we're not going to talk about the news of the day so much. Well, the only thing working for her are these sexual assault allegations. So now she's on that. And, you know... Whenever the floodgates open, especially in this realm, I get very nervous. I get nervous that the things that are being said are not true and that potentially innocent people are being implicated. I don't know that that's what's happening here. There's nobody that I've seen implicated so far that I'm going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, other than George Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> but there's none of the, the, the major serious allegations that I'm going, wait a minute, this feels like a railroad job. Partially, by the way, because almost everybody's acknowledging it. <laughs> That's what the amazing thing is. Again, Sandusky's never done that. Why is everybody immediately apologizing and saying, you know, yeah, basically this happened? Because it did. But it just still makes me nervous. All right, um... Obviously, the big story this week, at least you would think it was former campaign chairman during a critical period of time, Paul Manafort, either indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller's office or pled guilty to perjury already. And it was the pleading guilty to perjury by George Papadopoulos that most people understood, although it took a little while. Uh, was by far the most significant thing that we learned on Monday of this past week. When we first heard that there were indictments, and it was Manafort, well, that's big, but wait a minute, the the indictments involving Manafort don't have anything to do with the supposed, uh, you know, crux of the investigation, which is whether or not 
Russia colluded with the Trump organization in the campaign, what the level of Russian influence in the election results were, were there any crimes directly related to that. And at least according to the indictments, that's not what Paul Manafort uh, is being indicted for. They're not completely different. I mean, they're, they're certainly within the right ballpark, but they're not, uh, you know, you, maybe a better analogy is the same right church, wrong pew, because uh, they certainly do at least indirectly relate to issues uh, to Russia and potential conflicts of interests and why it is that Manafort would have been even named campaign manager. And, and that, by the way, might be the most significant question with regard to Manafort. How did he become Trump's campaign manager? It's bizarre. In some ways, it's the number one thing that makes me go, wait a minute. There's got to be something to this. Because it was out of the blue, and the guy is so obviously corrupt. My gosh! I mean, I know this is a bad way to evaluate it. Listen to him talk for 10 seconds. Look at him. If you just know his basic background, he's he looks like he's out of a mob movie. I, 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 it couldn't be more obvious. I mean, and to Glenn Beck's credit, there was a clip that circulated after the indictment where he's telling Bill O'Reilly last year, this guy's bad news. He's going to end up in jail. I mean, it's he didn't even try to hide it. And, and a lot of this still goes with his background of working for the oligarchs and massive amounts of money and how much money he owed. And it certainly seems as if he may have taken the job. This The current evidence is consistent with the idea that Manafort took the job to be able to pay off some of his debts through favors for these people. That's what it seems like happened. Now, maybe, maybe he saw the idea of Manafort being able to work for free as a big bargain for him. <laughs> now, if that's the case, then Trump's just an imbecile. <laughs> I mean, because he let this crook with massive foreign conflicts of interest run his campaign. Well, apparently not. But that's the best interpretation of Manafort running his campaign. That's the best we can do. The President of the United States is a complete imbecile. Motivated because he's so cheap, he wouldn't actually pay a real campaign manager, probably because at the time he didn't think he was going to win. Well, I guess at that point he probably had an idea he might win the nomination. But, you know, and then, of course, he got rid of Manafort very quickly under uh, very shady circumstances. Now you could argue maybe he figured it out. Maybe he figured out, oh, wait a minute, this guy's bad news. I need to shield myself from him. Is that possible? Yes. Yes, it is. But, look, here's what we know for sure. After these uh, indictments and this, it's important to point out, the third one's not an indictment alone. It's a conviction. It's a pleading, it's a pleading of guilty to perjury and lying about this direct investigation by this guy, George Papadopoulos, who the Trump people are trying to say he was just a coffee boy. Why would he have been tasked with creating, you know, setting up meetings between the Trump organization and Russia. That's absurd. Okay. Yeah. 
But you know what this reminds me of? When the Monica Lewinsky scandal hit, you know what the first uh, narrative about Monica was from the Clinton people? <gasps> She's a crazy stalker. She, she had no contact with the president. She was just an intern. This is ridiculous. This never happened. She's nuts. Remember that? How'd that turn out? Yeah. She was, she was so nuts that she was, act, she, was, she, she was so far away from the president, she was actually giving him oral sex in the oral office, in the Oval Office. How about that for a Freudian slip? In the Oval Office. So that turned out to be a lie. And remember, there's a reason why Trump and Clinton were good buddies before all this. They're cut from the same cloth. So, no, I, I see a lot of Monica Lewinsky uh, in uh, George Papadopoulos, obviously from very, in very different ways, potentially here. It also is consistent with some of the statements that were in the indictment that Manafort wanted the person whoever made these contacts to be low level. Well, why would you want that? Well, it's inherent plausible deniability because no one would ever believe that some nobody named George Papadopoulos would ever be the person to set up these meetings or these connections. So it works both ways. Yeah, I get that's weird that this would be, you know, in the realm of Papadopoulos. On the other hand, in a small, incompetent organization like the Trump team in spring of 2016, it actually makes some sense. And they didn't have that many people to pick from. There was a very small organization, and they were all, almost all of them, not credible people, like Carter Page, who's a complete nut job. I mean, frankly, at this point, the best argument I can make that Trump is totally innocent in all this is is a is it is a, a basically two pronged although they're related a two pronged defense. He's a complete imbecile, and the people around him were just too utterly incompetent and too you know not ready for prime time, too single A baseball for them ever to have played in the big big leagues like this. That's the best I can do, is that the people around him just were not capable of this type of thing. And that he was too dumb to see what was going on around him until it was too late. That's the best argument I can make. But what we do know for sure now is that when Trump has been telling us this was all fake news, that's a lie. That's a complete and total lie. This is not fake news. 100% now. We know it. This story is not fake news. So why is he telling us it's fake news? Well, he might have something to be afraid of. I've said before, Taking it out of the all the details, and there's so many details in this story, and I realize people don't like details anymore. For some reason, I'm, I'm a detail guy. I like to get down in the muck of the of what's really happening and try to figure it all out. But taking it out of the details, I've said before, and I think it bears repeating: if Trump was guilty of something significant, what would be his strategy? Fake news. Fake news. It's all fake news. Wrap yourself in the flag. 
which he's been doing with the whole NFL scandal. Wrap yourself in religion so that your followers think that any attacks on you are from the devil and that you're doing the work of God. And oh, by the way, let me add one thing to that list. You'd create a boogeyman. And the first boogeyman, which he was all over this week, Hillary Clinton, right? You'd be all over Hillary Clinton because she's the perfect boogie monster. What difference at this point does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference to Trump. doesn't make a damn bit of difference to me. I mean, you know, Fox News seems to be under the delusion that Hillary Clinton is actually president. In fact, a couple times, including Sean Hannity this week, they actually referred to her as president of the United States. And that was not a Freudian slip. They, they wish that she was president. They act like she's president. Well, Trump needs there to be that boogie monster. And part of the boogie monster with Hillary is, no matter how bad I am, I still saved you from the wicked witch, Hillary Clinton. Remember? It, it, would have, it was either me or Hillary. So, and, and by the way, in part of that equation which is, no matter how bad I am, Hillary would have been worse. The ends justified the means here, folks. I needed to kill the wicked witch. So if I needed to have a little help from Vladimir in killing the wicked witch, it's all justified because I was doing this for you. I was saving the country from the wicked witch of the West. And so, and I was outmanned, outgunned. I had, you know, the media was against me. The Republican establishment was a bunch of wimps. And so if Vladimir helped us out, we ought to thank him. That's what we're going to get to here, by the way, if this story ends up being remotely true. They're going to make the claim the ends justified the means. This was actually a heroic act that I was willing to go to the end of the earth, literally, to make sure we killed the wicked witch for you. So is it a coincidence that Trump has been all over fake news? This is all fake news, which we now know is bullshit. Wrap yourself in the flag. Wrap yourself in religion. Create the boogeyman in Hillary Clinton. All of that is consistent, 100%, with a guy who knows the jig is up or darn close to it. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. But that something really bad happened and that Mueller is going to find it and that he needs to prepare his cult for that occurrence. That all makes sense to me. I will fully acknowledge, I want to make sure this is clear, and I've wrote, written about it this week. I wrote two columns related to the Russia investigation, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I don't know what really happened. I don't know whether or not there was criminality. I still cannot, and I said this in the, one of the columns, I still cannot create a scenario that makes perfect sense, that is consistent with direct collusion between Trump and Russia to a level of, of criminality. Not saying it didn't happen. I can't make it work. That doesn't mean that didn't happen either. But So I, I'm still, there's a lot of pieces of this puzzle that are missing. Maybe Mueller has them. Maybe he's hoping to get them. Maybe he'll never find them. My gut has told me for a while, and I believe it more this week than I did previously, Mueller believes there was direct collusion. 
But Mueller hasn't been able to prove that yet. And then he's trying to get Manafort to flip. Now, the big question is, has Michael Flynn flipped? There's been a lot of speculation that maybe he already has. Or maybe the definition of flipping is just cooperation, which is very different. Cooperation is completely consistent with some level of innocence. Flipping is a whole nother matter. To me, if Manafort was going to flip, he already would have flipped. Doesn't mean he might not in the future, but to me that would have already happened, which is effectively what happened with Papadopoulos because Papadopoulos is getting a sweetheart deal in exchange for him already helping. I'll say, though, you know, there was a lot of speculation. Well, Papadopoulos must have been wearing a wire this week. Okay, I, I'll buy that theory. That makes sense based upon the indictment and the, and the conviction. But he was only wearing a wire for a couple of months. To me, that feels like a situation that didn't pan out very well. Because why would you stop it after only a couple of months? If it was working well, if you've got a wire on somebody and he's involved in a sting at this level, why do you pull the plug so fairly quickly? Let's, let's be clear. A couple months is a very short period of time for very busy people because you got to set up meetings and you know it, it, it's and they, for this is not a guy who's high powered. He's not going to be able to get a meeting right away. We're not going to be able to get his phone calls returned if at all right away. That time period is very suspicious to me. That time period feels like a failed sting. That after two months they decided, okay, no one's returning his calls. He can't get a meeting. He got a meeting. No one said anything. Now, on the other hand, why did he get such a sweetheart deal? So in order to get a sweetheart deal, you got to bring something to the table. So these are things that don't make full, a whole 100% perfect sense. I'm raising questions here. My gut tells me that if Papadopoulos was really getting the goods on people via a wire, that that sting would not have ended as quickly as it did. Could easily... You've been sold a bill of goods. And why the lying? Why all the lies? If there was nothing bad that happened here, why is everybody lying? Especially Jeff Sessions, a guy who seems like a decent guy, a guy who's Attorney General of the United States. It is obvious to me now, a lot of conservatives aren't willing to accept this, it is obvious that Jeff Sessions at the very least, misled the committee he testified to under oath in the process of becoming attorney general. There is just no way he didn't remember any contacts or any conversations regarding Russia. The most significant is that Papadopoulos says that he raised the issue with Sessions about a Trump meeting with Putin. Trump was apparently there. Trump, the greatest memory of all time, according to him, has no memory of that, right? Because he's already been on record saying, no, I knew nothing about this, which, of course, we know is a lie. Trump's lying. Trump's lying about not knowing about the meeting with Don Jr., Trump Tower. There's absolutely, positively no way he didn't know about that. So, again, why all the lies? But Sessions says, you know, according to his testimony... He knew of no conversations like that. How do you forget? How do you forget somebody coming to you? Let's pretend it's all bullshit, right? If it's all... Stop! This will be terrible if this ever gets out. 
I think you remember that. In fact, you remember it more. You remember it more if it's bullshit because this is hilarious. What do you? What do? You, what kind of a moron are you coming to me with this this crazy idea of a back channel meeting between Trump and Putin? You would remember that. Yet, according to Sessions' testimony, nothing like that ever happened. Why? So why all the lies? There's got to be a reason why there are all these lies. And as far as what happens next, you know, I'm not, I, I can never predict what Trump's going to do because I don't think Trump himself knows what he's going to do. I am definitely one of those people concerned that Mueller is going to get fired. And literally, I'm one of those people concerned that Mueller is going to get fired because there was a group, uh, you know, that's been referred to as concerned conservatives that uh, I'm a part of. They, we meet every couple of weeks. It's actually called the Meeting of the Concerned. It's out of D.C. I, I participate usually by phone or by Skype, depending on what technical setup they have this week. But the, the members of this group, of which I am part, came out with a letter to Republican members of Congress urging them to try to protect Robert Mueller from being fired. It was reported in the Washington Post, and if you're interested, Google it. You may have already seen it. Um, Mona Charon, our second-hour guest, is also part of that group, and we discussed that in hour number two. But I am of the belief that at this point, I think Trump could get away with it. Now, there would be some repercussions, but I don't think it would necessarily be fatal because most Republicans in Congress are complete wussies. They've shown time and time again that they will lay down for Trump for anything. So even though this would be the greatest test of whether or not they'll lay down for him for anything, I think, based upon past results, the future will be the same as the past, which is they'll find a way. They've sold out now. They're not going back. Maybe there'll be a few that would stand up, but not that many. And I think he could potentially get away with it. Now, again, it would hurt. It would hurt in some ways. His approval rating would probably go down, but I don't think it would be fatal. It's, it's sad, and that might be the most pathetic thing I've ever said on this podcast: that President Trump could fire a special best special counsel who is universally respected, a guy who is a Republican, a guy with a stellar background, indisputable credibility. He could fire him investigating himself. And Russia's role in influencing our elections, an incredibly serious matter, for which there is already ample evidence that it's a legitimate investigation, that could happen and there wouldn't be a fatal level of damage done. That's pathetic. If I'm right, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. So, you know, I get called a pessimist all the time, and I always say, well, you know. So you, what you're saying is that I, I know what's going on, that I'm usually right. Because you know, you know when I'm wrong? About the only times I'm wrong or dead wrong on things is when I'm being optimistic. <laughs> if I'm being optimistic about how people might react to something or if I'm relying on people's character or intelligence, that's usually when I'm susceptible or vulnerable to being wrong. That's the way it works. Being an optimist means you're in trouble. You, you might end up being wrong. Pessimism rarely ends up being incorrect. And I'm pessimistic about how the reaction might be. 
to, to Trump doing this. Whether or not he will actually do it, I don't think anybody knows. I think it is certainly in the realm of possibility, and just the fact that it's in the realm of possibility is pathetic. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happened over the last couple of weeks, one of which I have to at least mention in this context, is that Senators Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, neither of whom are running for re-election, just decided, you know what, screw it. I'm going to come out and say what I really believe about Donald Trump. And these are not rhinos. I know that now they're rhinos because they've, they've committed the mortal sin of criticizing Donald Trump. Corker and Flake are solid because they don't want to run in an environment where Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party. From Tennessee and Arizona, not from, you know, some blue state up northeast or, or a situation where they're not even really conservative. These are conservative red states, solid guys, people of good integrity, and they can't take it anymore. That would not be happening, folks. That would not be happening if things behind the scenes weren't even worse than they appear to be in public. That would not be happening. That's not the way the game is played. The, the idea that Flake and Corker went public in this way and decided not to run for re-election is the ultimate proof that as bad as it seems publicly, it is a fucking shitstorm behind the scenes. Otherwise, you would never have Corker and Flake doing what they're doing as publicly as they are doing it. Now, part of Trump's attempt to try to distract and boy, he's a master at distraction and manipulation of his cult. And I wrote about this in a column yesterday because I know it's gotten a ton of publicity on the right because, you know, it's always, what about Hillary? What Hillary? What Hillary? What difference at this point does it make? None, except if you need a distraction and you need a boogeyman. But this, uh, the latest attempt to create a boogeyman um, <laughs> It has so many problems with it, but it's related to this issue that the Democratic primary was rigged for Hillary Clinton. That's the uh, allegation by Donna Brazil, former DNC chair. She's now writing a book, which is inherently uh, creates skepticism about her claims, especially when her claims are not that new, um, rather vague, and in no way, shape, or form related to actual rigging. But that doesn't stop Trump and his minions and people on the right from, you know, look at that shiny object over there. The Democratic primary was rigged. No, 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 no. First of all, let's be clear about what rigging is. Rigging is an actual fixing where you prevented uh, anybody else from even potentially winning, or you know, and that would be involved with, like, keeping people off the ballot, changing votes, changing the rules after the game started. No, no, no. None of that happened. And even what you've been told happened has been distorted greatly. And I know... I can't stand having to do this because I despise Hillary Clinton and it sounds like I'm defending her. I'm not. I'm just telling you what the truth is, folks. That Uranium One story, by the way, is total bullshit. It is grade A Fox News Channel bullshit. All right? She had no authority over any of that crap. It was a nine-person panel. She wasn't even on the panel. It had to be unanimous. It's all bullcrap to distract the cult from what's really going on. Similarly, I love that Donna Brazil and Elizabeth Warren are now people who the right look at and go, wow, there's the truth teller. <laughs> Donna Brazil and Elizabeth Warren. Why? Because it, for in the moment, 
It happens to fit with what they want the narrative to be. Well, it doesn't make it true. Read the freaking allegations. And I wrote a column, so you don't have to read the allegations. I summarize them for you in the column. Again, you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com or Google it. That I wrote on Friday where I make the argument, okay, if you want to say rigged, which is incorrect, staging would be the proper term. I'll buy it. Yeah. The Democratic primary was staged. And so was the Republican primary stage. In fact, I think you can make a better argument if you want to use the word rigged, that the Republican primary was rigged more than the Democratic primary. Hillary didn't get $2 billion more in free advertising. Time lineup, totally in the tank. Roger Ailes, the head of Fox News Channel, totally in the tank. And hour number two with Mona Charon, we, got, we talk in great detail about how Roger Ailes may have tipped off Donald Trump to the first question of the first debate that was on Fox News Channel, which allowed his, his campaign to get off the, 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 the launching pad in a spectacular way. Roger Ailes was his old buddy. Rince Priebus was the head of the party. What did Rince Priebus end up doing? Well, he ended up cutting off the primaries early at a debate said, we're done debating or fighting each other. We need to accept that Trump's the nominee. That's effectively what he said. Then he cut off any dissent at the convention. What job did he end up getting? Hmm, chief of staff of the president of the United States. When, when you end up hiring the head referee of the game you just won under suspicious circumstances, that feels like a rigging. That's a rigging. So, and again, this is classic Trump projection. Whenever Trump makes an allegation against somebody else, especially when he does it you know, with great vigor, it probably means he's done the same thing. That's the way he works. So uh, check out that column. All right, uh, the tax plan that was proposed, there's some things that don't make a lot of sense. I'm skeptical as to whether or not with such a small uh, majority, especially with Corker and Flake basically on their own now, that you're going to be able to, to pass anything of substance. Uh, to me, you know, one of the things that shows to me that, that, that uh, Trump's a big fraud is you know, the estate tax. Which, if there's one thing Donald Trump ought to be in favor of, is getting rid of the estate tax, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's one thing you could could really count on him for. This this plan does not get rid of the estate tax, and it really bugs me. Not just because I might potentially benefit eventually from the estate tax being eliminated, but it bugs me that. The argument now for not eliminating the estate taxes, well, the exemptions are so high, very few people pay it, except for the super rich. I'm like, okay, here's your logic. Because remember, the estate tax is tax on money that's already been taxed. It's unjust. It's unfair. It's, it is malicious in its intent. It is, it is completely completely absurd so basically what you're saying well we've been able to reduce the number of people who are murdered by this law so therefore we think it's okay to keep it what what it's still unjust it doesn't matter but see what they've done is by increasing the exemption they've they've taken away the political potency because people think, well, there's not that many people that are affected. It's still stealing. It doesn't matter how many people are affected. It's stealing. 
And my guess is that, you know, the estate tax probably won't even be impacted by uh, if the, this tax plan, assuming that it even passes, because it's going to be the first thing on the chopping block, because it has no political viability. Because, again, it's just a few supposedly rich people that are being raped financially, that are having, mo- that's having their money already taxed, maybe multiple times, being stolen from them. One other thing I wrote a column about, which I want to uh, alert you to, because there's been a lot of uh, you know, talk in the last couple weeks about the JFK files finally being made public, although a lot of it's still redacted. Trump's tried to take credit for this. The National Enquirer this week gives Trump credit for this, which I love. It's just so hilarious. The National Enquirer's front page gives Trump the credit for breaking open the JFK conspiracy, which none of that's remotely true, but the the National Enquirer, as we've said many times, basically does Trump's bidding for him. And my guess is if there's a political motivation behind this, it's to try to keep his conspiracy wing happy because he's completely abandoned them on Las Vegas, which I've also written a column recently about. Wait a minute. Hold on. You Conspiracy nuts out there. Trumpsters are all in a tizzy that we're not being told the real story on what happened in Las Vegas. Well, if that's the case, why is Trump being duped by this? Or is he part of the conspiracy, folks? Can we please be consistent? So his conspiracy backers, the Alex Jones crowd is like, I got to be wondering, why is Trump not helping us out here on Las Vegas? So he throws him a bone on JFK, which he didn't even really do. This was something that was going to happen unless Trump stopped it. So the idea that Trump somehow gets credit for it is is ludicrous, but everything is ludicrous in this day and age. All right, uh, that does it for uh, hour number one. Make sure you listen to hour number two. Great interview with Mona Charon about some of the same uh, topics that we've already discussed and a lot more. And hour number three, the special hour devoted to the most recent developments that um, I have learned in my investigation of the Penn State uh, Sandusky case. So lots of great stuff. Uh, and as always, I only ask, Two things of you in return for giving you all this great stuff. Number one, make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth, what have you. It's the only way people will hear the uh, truth of this podcast. Now we're number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well... <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.